following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 10, if you will, please. Mark 10. We're going to be reading verses 32 to 45 here in just a moment, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you're there, please look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, please, as always, we ask that your spirit open our eyes and our hearts this morning to properly understand your word, to see you, Jesus, and the beauty and the glory of what you have done for us, even as we gather here at the end around your table to commemorate it with this act that you have have left for us, that, that all of our thoughts today will point and culminate in your great sacrifice on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see how we are so often like the disciples, that you will work in us, in our church, and in your church, Lord, just not just here at Cornerstone, but around the world, so that the way we live and think and operate and act will look less like the kingdoms of this world and more like your kingdom as you have laid it out for us here in these chapters we've been in now for the last little bit. And so just Continue to ask your blessing on us to, to change us and, and thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your great steadfast love. That song speaks volumes of how our hearts should always be feeling. We, we recognize that if you weren't a forgiving God, we'd have no hope, but you are. And so we come this morning in gratitude and in response to that steadfast love and ask that you will love us and make us more like your son through your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. We didn't plan originally for uh, the message today to coincide with uh, our observance of the Lord's table here in just a moment. Um, 
but I guess in divine providence or just pure dumb luck, it did, and I think it's appropriate. Today, we're going to look at the third and final uh, of the failure cycles that we've been studying here in Mark chapter 8, verses, what was 22? Now I forgot where we started. Chapter 8, verse 22, all the way here through the end of chapter 10. And even though it feels like we read a lot of verses just a moment ago, uh, the reality is, is there isn't a ton new in this third and final failure cycle. Uh, in fact, I think it would be fair to say that this final, this, this third and final failure cycle, failure teaching cycle we'll see here in just a moment, is really nothing more than just a nuance of the one we just finished last Sunday in that second, second uh, section here in Mark. I mean, they're different enough, I think, to warrant being handled separately. Obviously, the Spirit thought that as well, and yet they are similar enough that, that you will see here, even in the text, that there isn't a lot for Mark to develop or really drive home in the teaching component here. And so he's able to really just in a few comments from Jesus, get his main point across and, and then we're done. And so to put us in a good place to see what Mark is doing here, I thought it'd be helpful to just quickly remind ourselves of what we have seen so far, sort of the main points of these first two failure cycles here in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through the end of chapter 10. Remember in the first failure cycle, and if you don't know what that is, that's Mark's mechanism that he's using here. He presents a foretelling by Jesus of his coming death, burial, and resurrection, followed instantly in each case by a failure on the part of the disciples to understand and respond appropriately, followed third and finally by teaching or some kind of response, some kind of a story, something like that, that drives home what Jesus will be using to correct their failure. In the first one, after Jesus had first predicted his death, this was the time where Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke him and said, you know, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you that the Messiah, that the Savior, whom we envision bringing a great and glorious kingdom to this world and restoring Israel's fortune, would actually have to suffer on a cross that would actually have to, to experience weakness. And so Jesus responds to that by showing them and teaching them through stories and through direct, through direct uh, communication that in reality, the glory of the Messiah will come through his suffering, that the power of the Messiah will be made clear through his weakness, that actually apart from his weakness and apart from his suffering, there will be no true glory and true power as God has planned it. They were seeing the Messiah and his kingdom through their lens, through all of their expectations, not through God's, and as such, Jesus responds and corrects that. In the second failure cycle, again after Jesus had predicted his death, the disciples break into an argument almost like immediately about which of them will be the greatest in his kingdom. Remember the megas? They're thinking rank and position and hierarchy. They, and so they want to know who's going to be. I'm going to be first, and then you're going to be second, you be third, and you know, you're 10th, and you're 12th, whatever, et cetera, down the line. They're having this argument. And, and Jesus responds to them, teaches and corrects them by telling them that in his kingdom, the order is going to be a little different. That if someone wants to be first, that that person must be last of all and a servant of all. Do you remember that language from back in chapter 9? And from that point on, Mark gave us those four scenes that we just finished last week, the first three of which are Jesus dealing with people who would have been last in those contexts, and he treats them as if they're first. 
And the fourth one is where he interacts with a guy who would have been first in that context, and he basically treats him as if he's last. Jesus takes everything the disciples and the world around them, their culture around them, thought about order and rank within worldly kingdoms, and he turns it literally on its head as he shows them that, no, 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 the last will be first and first will be last. And in fact, if you look back just very quickly at chapter 10, verse 31, you see that the last words of that second failure cycle, again, that's just my term for them, are just a repeat of the main point. He says, last words from Jesus, last words of that particular cycle. He says, many who are first will be the last and the last first. This was the emphasis of the entire second cycle. And yet I would point out that in his initial response to the disciples, that wasn't the only point he made. I just quoted it a moment ago when he first hears about their argument about who's going to be the megas. His initial response is, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and servant of all. Well, clearly, as we can see now, he has developed that last of all idea very well. Okay, If you don't get it, if you don't understand by now, either I'm a really bad teacher or you're really dense. I don't know which, okay? But he, and you're like, maybe both, but he... He didn't really develop the servant of all component. Not, not yet. Obviously, they're connected. If you're last, maybe it's because you're a servant, or servant will definitely make you last. But they're a little different, too. And that's what this third failure cycle is focused on, the servant of all idea. And this is why, as I said a moment ago, it's just really a nuance of the last one. Um, it's different enough to warrant its own section, and yet it's similar enough that it doesn't need a ton of development in order to make the point clear. And so I'm treating our time in the text this morning, I think, like, like Mark does. I'm going to just assume that you got the main point of the last failure cycle, that it's clear, that you understand it now, okay? If you haven't been here through it, it's your first Sunday You'll have to go back and listen to get that point. I'm just going to, I can't rebuild all the same arguments and all the same examples. Um, I, I, I'm, just thinking I'm just going to show it to you fairly directly, and then I'm hoping you'll understand because of our foundation that we laid already. So let me just point out a few details along the way to get to Mark's main point. I would begin by noting that in verse 32, Mark now makes it explicitly clear where they're going, and that's Jerusalem. And I've been telling you all along that throughout this journey, every step that Jesus takes, okay, each step along the way is taking him one step closer to the cross. This has been his final teaching circuit. And so now Mark is making that clear to us. This is where they're headed. And as you can see here in this verse, the disciples are, quote, amazed, and they are afraid as they approach the capital, which is, if you think about it, the first and only clue so far in Mark that maybe, just maybe, the disciples are starting to pick up that something's going to happen and it's not going to be positive. I mean, you think it would be clear after Jesus two times now has said to them, I'm going to die. Like, I don't know how much clearer he could be, but, but Matthew, when he recounts the same story, makes the point that they hear things and they don't understand because their minds are, are just confused. They're darkened at this point. And so to date, they've not seen to process that informa information correctly. Here we see Jesus is going to tell them a third time what is going to occur. And as you look just quickly at verses 33 and 34, you will note that of the three foretellings to date, this being the third and final, 
This one is by far the most specific. It is by far the most detailed. He doesn't just say, I'm going to die. He tells them specifically who's going to be involved. It's going to be the chief priests. It's going to be scribes. It's going to be the Gentiles, which in his context there means Romans. Uh, he tells them specifically some things that are going to be done to him. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be flogged, which is a horrible, horrible form of torture, which we will talk about at a later time. This is the most detailed description yet. And you would think that given the disciples' amazement and fear, given now them being pulled aside by Jesus on the way up the mountain to Jerusalem, being told by him these are the specific things that are going to happen, these are the people who are going to do it, you would think if ever there was a moment to, to understand and properly respond, it would be now. But that would not fit the cycle. <laughs> and as you can see in verse 35, that didn't happen. Because here James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus and ask him a question that makes them sound like they're about six or seven years old. Um, I, I say that because, you know, well, the, the question is, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And I remember trying that once as a kid with my dad. I remember going up to him, no lie, and saying, dad, I just want you to say yes to whatever I ask. Because, of course, parents are stupid, and they'll be like, oh, sure, that's great. Whatever you want me to say yes to, I will totally say yes to it without any foreknowledge of what the subject is, Right? So, so it doesn't work at the parent level. Jesus isn't really going to be uh, messed up by that either. And if this wasn't childish enough, if you turn over into Matthew chapter 20 to Matthew's recounting of this same scene, Matthew adds the detail that they also brought their mom into it, okay? That their mother comes along, and she's the one who makes the initial interaction with Jesus. Hey, my sons have a question. Will you, you know, I want you to interact with this. So mom is there. Too, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Regardless, Jesus says back to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they reply, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, let's pause on this specific question and just ask and answer two questions of our own. Number one, what is the significance of this request? Well, in ancient times, uh, just like today, you would have uh, rulers, in this case it would be kings, emperors, things like that, rulers of particular realms who had a lot of stuff going on, right? They got a lot of things under their care, a lot of things to, to look over and to oversee, and it was impossible for them to oversee everything in their kingdom or everything in their realm. And so just like today, they have uh, helpers, right? They've got governors, they've got managers, they've got overseers, people who are responsible to oversee maybe specific areas or specific tasks, specific responsibilities. Well, typically, the king would appoint a single individual, his closest uh, advisor, his, his most trusted confidant, to, to be over all of these people. This was very, very common in, in the ancient world. Think of, of Haman in the story of Esther. What was Haman's job in the story? of Haman is kind of as the king's guy, right? He's the guy who's, who's going out and he's doing things for the king. Whatever the king wants, Haman is, is seeing that it happens. Think Joseph during the famine, as, as Pharaoh is having to deal with and process this prophecy of coming famine, he takes Joseph and he puts him over everything in the kingdom. The only thing that Joseph isn't over in the kingdom is the Pharaoh himself. Think even of Jesus after he has ascended up to heaven. 
where does he sit at the Father's right hand? Okay? In all of these cases, Haman, Joseph, Jesus, these guys, or God, <laughs> are second only to the king in terms of their power and authority in the kingdom. And to show that visibly to all, the king would seat them at his right hand. So if I'm the king and I'm on my throne, I've got another chair right here. And that guy, who we sometimes refer to as the right-hand man, ah, good, you all got it, is seated. Now, you know the origin of that term, right, if you didn't before. He is seated next to me. His, his position next to the king obviously shows his rank, but it shows more than just his rank. This is the nuance. It shows his power. It shows his authority, that there is no one else in the kingdom more powerful, more authoritative than him. Others may have rank, okay? There might be a lot of people with rank in the kingdom, but not all of them may have power. This guy at the king's right hand, he has both. Does that make sense? Do you understand the significance of this, this term? James and John are asking for a slight variation on that concept. I mean, notice here, there, there's two of them, right? And so they're asking to sit. That's your key, that, that what's going on here. They're asking to sit, one on his right hand, one on his left. There, it's the variation, because there's two this time. So they're asking to be the guys in the kingdom who have this great position of power and authority. They want to rule. That's your word. They don't want just rank. They want to rule over everyone but Jesus himself. Everyone, that is, including the other ten disciples, which they'll pick up on, and we'll deal with that again in a moment. It's a really bold request that they're asking for, but this is it. This is what they're asking for. My other question I would ask and answer here is, why are they asking this? I mean, specifically, why are they asking this? Because if, if I were to give you a pop quiz, let's say you didn't know this story at all, but you know the rest of the Gospels up to this point, and I said to you, name a disciple or disciples who you think might have the guts to go up to Jesus and ask to be the second most authoritative figure in the kingdom of God. Who would your first guess be? Okay. Peter is most people's first guess. Most people think that Peter is that guy because typically Peter is the one who puts himself out first and he wants to be this, he wants to be that, he's a spokesman. And yet in this particular case, it's not Peter, it's James and John. Why? Uh, well, as I've argued in the past, and I think I can make a very strong biblical case for this, I think James and John are cousins of Jesus. I've explained this before. If you were here way back when we were looking at the disciples as Jesus was calling them, I made this point clear. But I think you can make a very strong biblical case that there's mother, their mother's name is Salome and that she is the sister of Mary. And if that is correct, and I think it is, then this makes James and John Jesus' cousins, which explains a lot in this particular scene. It explains why they brought their mom into it in Matthew chapter 20. Because quite frankly, that would have been stupid <laughs> had any other disciple done it. It really would have been. Like, why are you bringing your mom? But in this case, if she's Jesus' aunt, now there's a family connection, an issue of respect and expectation in the culture that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, you think about kingdoms in the way that, that the people of, 
uh, well, James and John, the disciples, the peoples of people of Jesus' day did. You think nepotism? You think the idea of family connections? You think the idea of, of trying to take advantage of what you've got, even in the kingdoms around them, that would have been very common for kings and rulers and, and emperors to put people that are related to them in positions of power? I think it explains why they're doing it. I think they're exercising a very worldly mindset. This is my point. A very worldly mindset of trying to gain power in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus responds to them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What, what is he talking about? Drinking cup, being baptized? He's, he's using these ideas as metaphors for suffering. I mean, think about Jesus in the garden when he's praying to the Father about his impending suffering. What is the thing he prays? Father, let this cup pass from me. He used the metaphor of a cup. The, the idea of being baptized into fire, into suffering and pain, that, that's not an uncommon idea. So Jesus uses these elements that we think of very freely within the church as being visible, tangible reminders and examples and identifiers of what Jesus has done. He now uses them, though, to refer to suffering and pain and death. James and John, are you willing to go through those things that I'm about to go through for God's kingdom? And they, bold as ever, <laughs> we are able Okay? And Jesus says back to them, okay, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. You know, if I'm James and John at this point, I'm pretty bummed because not only did I not get what I wanted, which is like the number two position of power in the kingdom of God, I just found out I'm going to have a horrible suffering, <laughs> painful death in the future. I have suffering and pain and tribulation to look forward to in the future. Uh, this is not what they were hoping for. Regardless of how they felt at this moment, again, I'm just flying through this to get to Mark's point. Mark now tells us how the other ten disciples felt about their request. It says they were indignant. When they hear, they are indignant, which is more than just like, how dare you? It's like, how dare you? It's anger. It's rage. How dare you request such a thing? You want to rule over us? How dare you? We were together. James and John have just tipped their hand that they want to rule over the ten and really all other believers as well. The other ten may have wanted the same thing. We don't know. They just didn't ask. So, so does everyone understand the problem? Everyone understand the situation? Because this, this is the foretelling. This is the failure. And now Jesus responds and teaches them all. Jesus called them all to himself, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see the emphasis of what Jesus is saying? He gets the point. It's just emphasizing that what I'm telling you isn't far-fetched. He, he's emphasizing this idea of ruling and authority. This is how worldly kingdoms work, he says. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, just stop and try to hear that like the disciples did for just, just a moment. I mean, they're being told to be servants and slaves, which are basically synonyms here. They mean the same thing. When we hear those kinds of words, particularly the word slave, we instantly 
read it with our modern American context and vocabulary, and we think of slavery as a racial, ethnic thing, that, that's not the case at all in the first century, first century Israel at least. I mean, if you're a Jewish guy who's rich enough to have slaves, guess what ethnicity your slaves are? Jewish. Okay, it, for them, slavery is not a racial or ethnic thing. It's a class thing. Okay? If you're a slave, you're a, you're a servant, you're at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to authority and power. Your job is to live your life for others, not to live your life over others. Okay? Do, you, do you understand that concept for them? And thus, Jesus now makes this final comment, which is probably one of the best-known verses in Mark. He says, for even, okay, you should be this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to be a slave, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sets himself as the example here. He didn't come to be served by man. He didn't he didn't come as a king to establish an earthly kingdom. I and mean, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 emphasizes this point. Though he was God, though he is king of all, he humbles himself by becoming a man. Just think of that. God, sitting with all power and authority, recognized by the heavenly hostess as a deity, puts on flesh. He comes as a, a man and he takes the form of a servant. He's not, he's not born into a king's house. He's not born into acclaim and privilege and money and power. He's not born in Jerusalem or Rome or some great home or city somewhere. He's born to an unmarried teenage girl who's engaged to a day laborer who lives in like a backwater town in Galilee. You can't get lower than that. He doesn't go on then to like make a name for himself and pursue power. He spends the next 30 years of his life working with wood and tools building stuff. His collar can't get any bluer. He, he's a nobody. Even when he begins his public ministry, he doesn't pursue ecclesiastical uh, position, power, prestige. He doesn't seek the approval of the religious elite for what he's doing as if he's trying to get somewhere in that world. No, he goes and he preaches to farmers and fishermen and day laborers, shepherds, nobodies. He doesn't accumulate things for himself as his popularity grows, as any preacher today seems to do, particularly the ones on television who I like to pick on. There's no mansions or cars or nice clothes. One guy comes up to him and says, I want to follow you. And he's like, that's great, but I'm homeless. <laughs> hey, the birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes. I don't even have a place to lay my head, he says to them. In fact, when he dies, what little he did have, his clothes, the only thing apparently in his possession at the moment, even that is taken from him. And he dies naked, homeless, and penniless. Every aspect Jesus' life proves what he is saying to the disciples right here. Do you understand this? Everything. Birth, how he grew up, how he pursued ministry, what he owned, everything proves what he's saying to the disciples, that he didn't come to be served. He came to serve, to be a slave. Why? So that he can give his life as a ransom for many. And, and the key word here, the one you underline, is the word ransom. I've described it before. I'll do it again very briefly. It's the word you use to describe a payment that is made in order to save a life. That's the most basic way of understanding it. So let's say you've committed a crime, or at least you've been accused of committing a crime. Sometimes these things happen. And you're scheduled to be put in prison, be flogged, die, something, who knows. 
your family may be given the opportunity to come in and, you know, grease the wheels a little bit. Make a payment to get your freedom. It's a ransom. Or let's say you've been taken, you've been kidnapped, you've been taken hostage, you're going to be sold as a slave, or you're going to be, done, something terrible is going to happen to you. Your family, someone who loves you, a friend, somebody can come and they can pay a ransom to pull you back to save your life. This is, this is a price that is paid to avoid a penalty and save a person. This, Jesus says, is why he came as a servant is to give his life to pay that price in order to spare many, to spare ours. He pays the penalty. He comes and he takes the wrath of God that was due us for our sins. It was all ours, and that penalty was rightly aimed at us, and Jesus puts himself in our place so that God can pour it all out on him. And he does it so that all of us who place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus and him alone can be free, redeemed, spared, saved, forgiven, all of the above. It's interesting that in this eternal transaction that occurs on the cross, God doesn't want, demand, need money, stuff, right? There's nothing to give him. What he wants, needs, and demands, though, is a perfect sacrifice. Someone who can take his wrath, and since none existed on earth, God gave his own perfect sacrifice. I just read... um, J.I. Packer, again, he, he just, he's in my head with this uh, right now. He was asked to define the gospel. He says, I can, and like short, like quick, you want a really small definition of the gospel. He says, I can do it in three words. You ready? Adoption through propitiation. Propitiation is the act of, of someone satisfying the wrath of another. And what God has done is his own, he satisfies his own wrath. He doesn't try to make us do it. He satisfies his own wrath. And when, doing, when he's done doing that, he makes us his children. This is what Jesus was doing. Folks, I would love to tell you, as I think about you know, how this plays out for us, I'd love to tell you that, that the church has read these words of Jesus and has responded in obedience ever since, but you know they haven't, right? Not only do people jockey for rank within what we see of the kingdom of God, but they clearly jockey for power. And I will start with my own kind by noting that there are many who have pursued professional ministry simply out of a desire to exercise power over others. There's no, no denying that. But I think the church as a whole is thoroughly infected with this kind of thinking, this desire to have power and to rule, to be seen as someone with power and rule uh, authority. It just sickens me. Um, pastors think like this. Non-pastors do as well. I've seen many people within the church, not thankfully not too many within Cornerstone, but in my life, who desperately wanted positions and titles and stuff like that. Um, they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be decision makers. I'm telling you now, this is not what Jesus said his kingdom was going to be like. And I would ask the question, where are the people who just want to serve? Where are the people who don't want to be seen? Where are the people who are willing to give their life for others, not literally, but practically, to, to do what has to be done for the sake of, of those around them like, like Jesus did? I mean, thankfully, we have a number of people like that here at Cornerstone. I'd, I'd be the first one to say that. People who serve faithfully, serve in the background, sometimes in the front, too. They do it not because they're trying to serve Cornerstone, but because they are trying to obey Jesus and be like him and serve him. Uh, thank you 
Some of you, though, aren't serving anybody. You're just not. I mean, oh, if you were asked to be in charge of something, I'm all for that. Asked to clean the bathroom. Um, I'm busy. Asked to help with some kids. Mm, Not so much. Put up a fence. No, thank you. You know, it's just, it's the heart that is in every one of us. We want to have that power and authority. We don't want to be the servants that Jesus himself was. Jesus served us by suffering and dying for us. And as we gather around the Lord's table here in just a moment, we're going to be given a a tangible reminder of that service to us. His body was broken. There's no benefit to him. His body is broken for us. His blood is spilled for us so that we can be put in a right relationship with God. This, This very act is a tangible reminder of the truth of this passage that we've looked at this morning. And so as we, partake, as we partake, I would ask that you, in a heart of sincere, of sincerity, thank Jesus for how he has served you. I mean, if you are here and you, you are convinced that your faith and hope and trust are in Christ and Christ alone, then recognize that verse 45 was written about you. That he came not to be served by you, but to serve you and to give his life for you. And so thank him for that. And and then also commit yourself by the Spirit's help to being a servant like him. Would you bow your heads with me?